please join me in extending a warm Bahamian welcome to Mr. Sam Rotman. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. It's a tremendous joy to be here, and thank you to the pastor and Beth Elliott and, uh, for having me to come here. This was about a, a year in the workings of uh, coming here to be with you, and so it's a privilege to be here and to be in your church. And uh, a lot of thanks, of course, to Anton and uh, his um, ministry of music right there. Yeah, your dad, your dad, your dad, yeah. And he has been a great help. And then I need to again mention Steve Lowe, a member of the church who is hosting my wife and myself for the week that we're here. And so thanks very much to us. He's the host with the most. So it's tremendous, tremendous. So let's give him a hand. And to all the people I mentioned. <clears throat> Two things. The program is about an hour and 20 minutes, hour and 25 minutes. You know how long we're here. It's about 7.20ish, a little bit later, perhaps a few minutes. I play just classical music. I don't play hymn arrangements or gospel music or Christian uh, rock. Uh, it's classical music. I'm going to introduce the pieces. I think you can enjoy a lot more of the music if you know a little bit about it. So I'm going to explain the pieces. And then later in the program, after you hear a lot of music, I'm going to share how music is not the most important thing in my life, but Jesus Christ and how I came to know him when I was a student in New York City at the Juilliard School of Music when I was a student there. So the first piece I'm going to play for you is by Beethoven. Beethoven is my favorite composer. And this is a very unique piece by Beethoven because this is actually the first piece Beethoven ever wrote for the piano. He was 25 years old. It was 1795. And Beethoven had given concerts of other composers like Bach and Mozart. Uh, they knew he was composing. He studied with Mozart. And so now he was presenting his first piece. And uh, when he played this piece and composed the piece to play it, I can tell you that that night, music changed forever. Because nobody had written music that was this dramatic or intense. Music to many people was just sort of entertainment, even to the court, uh, the aristocracy. Mozart wrote pieces to entertain people while they were dining and things. Not Beethoven, no. This is the power of human emotions the power of expression of the soul. And it's in four parts. The first part is lively. The second part is slow. And to me, the most profound part is actually the second part, the second movement. The third movement is a little dance. And the fourth movement is very fast and intense. So this is a very unique piece, the first piece for the piano by Beethoven. Thank you. 
can tell you that Beethoven ended up writing 855 pages 
of piano music, and that was the first 12. <laughs> and every piece got better and better and better and better and better. Next time I'll play you three pieces that um, have no relationship to each other, except I like them. So the first piece is by the Russian composer Tchaikovsky. Tchaikovsky wrote a very famous piece that's always performed all over the world at Christmas time called The Nutcracker. It's written for orchestra and it's a ballet. And uh, there is a Russian pianist who took the piece for orchestra, The Nutcracker, and transcribed it for the piano. That's called a piano transcription. Sometimes a piece is written for the piano and you write it for the orchestra and that's called an orchestral transcription. So I can tell you that 90% of the time transcriptions don't work. The composer wrote it for the piano and it's best on the piano. If he thought it was better for the orchestra, he would have written it for the orchestra, but this works. He takes 100 players in the orchestra and puts them in 10 fingers. So this is a very important big moment in the piece, the climax, where this duet takes place. This prince is having this beautiful ballet with the Snow Queen. And when Tchaikovsky wrote it for the orchestra, he wrote it for two harps playing throughout the piece. And when you hear in the beginning all this rippling and rippling and rippling of notes, those are the harps to give this other world image. Again, you know the story is this girl got this nutcracker as a Christmas gift on Christmas Eve. She loved it so much, she went to sleep holding the Christmas, uh, the nutcracker. He comes to life and he takes her to this wonder world of sugar plum fairies and dance of the flowers. It's the music. I saw the ballet about two years ago and I was weeping for 45 minutes. The music is just uncomfortable. <laughs> unexpressible how beautiful it is. The second piece is called The Music Box, a very delicate piece and uh, written in 1880 by a Russian composer named Lyadov and it sounds just like a music box and something unusual happens at the end which is the music, the music box unwinds. So imagine this little ballerina on top and you're hearing this music box and then gradually it unwinds and gets slower and slower and slower and slower. Very unique piece. I never knew this piece until a few years ago, but I think it's a gem. So listen to the music box unwinding. The third piece is a French dance written by a French composer, Emmanuel Chabrier. Not as famous as other composers. And I like this piece because it's very exuberant. Uh, after the very delicate music box, you have this uh, exuberant contrast with clogs and stuff as the French have their French dances. So the three pieces, the Tchaikovsky, the Nutcracker, the ballet with the harps, the very delicate music box, listening to Unwind, and then the French dance, the three pieces,
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you could hear the music box unwinding, yes? I, I tell the story just because it's so wonderful. Uh, I played this piece not too long ago. I was in Birmingham, England. I was in England, actually, for concerts, and I was playing in Birmingham. So I decided just to say, you know, something unique happens at the end of the piece. I didn't tell them what happens. But listen closely, because at the end of the piece, there's something very unusual that happens at the end. So I stopped, and I asked just like, you know, I just asked them, um, so what happened at the end of the piece? And this, this senior Brit woman raised her hand, the batteries ran low. <laughs> I'll never forget it, oh boy. And you know, show your respect, you call senior uh, British uh, mum. Oh mum, oh mum, there was no batteries in 1880. It was pure craftsmanship. She was surprised everybody also laughed like you did, but she thought it was the batteries. Next, I'm going to play you four pieces by French composer Claude Debussy. I play a lot of his music, and every time he wrote a piece, there's always a story. There's always an image. He wrote what's called programmatic music. You're supposed to see things. He made the music come to life to create an image in your mind. The first piece is unusual because the title is not in French, it's in Spanish. Most of his titles, of course, being French, he titled them in French. It's called in Spanish, La Puerta del Vino, which means the door of wine. Or sometimes it's translated, the wine gate. So if you go to southern Spain, there's a city called Granada. And in Granada, Spain, there's a famous palace called the Alhambra. And one of the entrances to this Alhambra Palace is called La Puerta del Vino, the door of wine. It's called that because once a year, when they bring in the harvest of grapes, they have a procession of thanksgiving to God. They open this door, the grapes go in, it's for the wine press to create wine. And then they close the door and the door is never opened again until next year's harvest of another thanksgiving um, processions to God. So Debussy wrote this piece based on this door, and it's this very Spanish-sounding piece. You hear Spanish rhythms, a man is singing a song, and he strums his guitar, sometimes very quickly and sometimes very tenderly. The second piece is called Ondine. Ondine is the name of a water fairy in French folklore. The closest thing is Walt Disney's The Little Mermaid. You know, he created a little Ariel. Ariel is this little mermaid, this fairy. And so the two things in the piece are very similar to the movie. She plays in the water, so there's a lot of playfulness. And then she, by playing in the water, she agitates the water. So there's a lot of water sounds, a lot of playful sounds. And at the end of the piece, Debussy writes a jadeau. Jadeau in French is a fountain of water. So she plays and plays, and then a whole bunch of springing of water fountains up, springs up. If you listen closely, you'll feel the water spring on your face. But if you don't feel the water spraying on your face, you'll feel my sweat on your face. <laughs> the third piece is about a juggler, an American who was purported to be the greatest juggler in the world, and he was. He performed in Paris in 1905. Debussy saw him perform and was so amazed at his uh, comic show and his amazing ability that he wrote a piece about him. 
It starts off with a trumpet call, and then this man walks out as a clown, acting like he didn't know what to do. But he was the greatest juggler. So there's a lot of comic in it. He teases the audience on one side of the stage, the other side of the stage. It's a very clever piece, very light. The last piece is one of the great pieces Debussy wrote called The Sunken Cathedral. It's based on a French poem. You're on the coast of France, so it's just like here. You're on the coast of the water, the ocean, and it's very foggy. I'm sure you've had many foggy mornings. And after 30 seconds, you're going to hear three soft bells. Listen for the three soft bells. The water starts moving. The bells get louder. And then out of the water comes this gigantic cathedral. You will know when it happens. The piano starts rising off the platform. But but you will know. The water starts moving again, and then the whole cathedral sinks back into the water. That's why the French title is La Cathédrale, the cathedral, Anglouti, engulfed. We translate it sunken, La Cathédrale Anglouti. The whole cathedral sinks down into the water. The fog returns. You heard the fog in the beginning. It returns. Two soft bells in the peace sense. So come with me to the world of Claude Debussy, one of the great composers. The Spanish piece, the water piece, Ondine, the fountain at the end, the juggler, and the sunken cathedral by Debussy.
Thank you.
Thank you. I hope you could see the cathedral going up and coming down. Next, I'll play you two pieces by the Russian composer Rachmaninoff. So you have French music, you had Beethoven, which is classical, and Tchaikovsky, romantic. Now this is Russian. Uh, the one word that describes his music is melancholy. Rachmaninoff had a long bout with depression, but his music sounds lonely, melancholy, but absolutely exquisite. The first piece, to me, listen to it with your eyes closed. I wish I could play it five times slower because it's so, I wish I could squeeze everything out of each note. The second piece is a typical of his music, a prelude. He uses almost every key in the piano. He had the biggest hands that ever played the piano. Now I can stretch to 11 notes. I can, I can play, excuse me, I should play 11 notes. I can almost stretch to 12 notes, but Rachmaninoff could play 15 notes. That's one hand. I say that's not a hand, that's a paw. <laughs> but he gets great sounds out of the piano. In some ways, he gets a sound out of the piano that no other composer that ever wrote for the piano gets, just these different layers of sound that he creates. So the first, the melancholy, the slow piece, and then the prelude by the Russian composer Rachmaninoff.
Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, before I play a last piece by Chopin, I'd like to take a few minutes and share a little bit about myself. And my story really begins with my parents. My father was born in Eastern Europe in Romania in 1905. My mother was born in Eastern Europe. At that time, the country was called Czechoslovakia. And she was born in Czechoslovakia in 1915. So my parents were 10 years difference in age, but they were both very religious Orthodox Jews. The Orthodox Jews are the strictest, strictest adherers to the law of Moses and the Torah, the five books of Moses. And they left Europe because of Hitler, the Second World War, the Nazis. My father's family that stayed in Romania, which were my father's parents, so they would have been my grandparents, my father's sister, cousins, aunts and uncles, sadly, were all murdered by the Nazis. If my parents had stayed in Europe, they both would have been murdered. They would never have survived. But they escaped Europe. They eventually, like a lot of Jews, ended up living in South America. So from 1940 to 1950, my parents lived in Quito, Ecuador, the capital of Ecuador. And then my brother was born there, my sister was born there, and my mother was pregnant with me, and my father had a desire to come to the United States, and through New York City, they came to the United States in 1950. And I was born five months later in October of 1950. And I was raised in a very, very religious Jewish home. My parents did send me to public school during the day, but then after that, I went to school in the synagogue, and it was called Hebrew school. Hebrew school, because if you study the Old Testament, it's written in Hebrew. If you go to Israel, you speak Hebrew. So I learned Hebrew going to Hebrew school. I learned all about being Jewish. I learned hundreds of prayers. And I went to Hebrew school five days a week for eight years. I cannot emphasize how big and important this was to me. My grandparents died for being Jewish. Of course, I never knew them. My parents suffered and were persecuted for being Jewish, and I was gonna identify with everything I could with my Jewish heritage. Uh, as I mentioned, all my friends were Jewish, my relatives were Jewish. I started Hebrew school when I was eight until I was 16, so all those years of growing up had a very big impact on me. I remember I'd wake up in the morning, I'd pray for a half an hour in Hebrew, um, and then I went to school and something unusual happened. It sounds funny now, but I can tell you it was not funny at the time, but eventually I had developed a very foul mouth. I could curse very easily. I could lie to my teachers very easily. I could lie to my parents. So I was very religious in the synagogue. And I can tell you these prayers meant a lot to me. This was important to me. And I remember learning something. It is easy to be religious. And then an hour later, I'm in school, and I'm swearing and cursing and lying. And sadly, that was easy. It was easy for me to be religious when I had to, and it was easy for me to be a sinner when I wanted to. Then when I was 17, I went to a famous music school in New York City. I was accepted at the Juilliard School of Music. I was there for five years, got a bachelor's and a master's in piano. And there I met three students who call themselves born-again Christians. Well, uh, I didn't know what that meant, but there was something unusual about these students. Uh, every time I saw them in the cafeteria or taking a break from practicing, they were always reading the Bible. The Bible. I mean, this was not a school of religion. It was a school of music. 
And whenever they got together, they were always talking about this Jesus. Jesus said this, and Jesus did this. They weren't talking about a church, and they never mentioned Christianity. They were always what Jesus did, what Jesus said. Well, they heard I was a religious Jew, and they began to talk to me, and they basically asked me two questions. They asked me if I ever read the New Testament. And I told them, nope, I never read a word of it. I was told it was not a Jewish book. It wasn't for the Jews. Um, you'd never find one in our home, so I had no idea what was in it. Never saw one, never read one, never touched one. Zero knowledge, nothing zero. They asked me, do I think that Jesus could be the Jewish Messiah? The Jews are waiting for this anointed one. And I said, no, 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 Jesus was not the salvation for Jewish people. But you know, I was very moral. I didn't want to do anything to hurt my parents. My parents almost died for me. They sacrificed for me. So I didn't want to shame them. So I never drank alcohol. To this day, still don't know what a beer tastes like, my choice. Never been drunk. Never took drugs. I lived in New York City from 1968 to 1973. That was the height of the Vietnam War, the hippie movement. If you lived where I lived, 71st Street and Broadway, uptown Manhattan, it's not what drugs you wanted, it's how much drugs you wanted. My friend, I never took anything, never. Never had premarital sex. So even though I was so moral on the outside, no sex, no drugs, no drinking, I'm gonna tell you I was very, very, very immoral. Immoral. You know where? Right here. You know, sometimes people have certain struggles with things, and we say they're down and out. I didn't have struggle with those things, but I was up and out. The problem is whether you're down and out or up and out, you're out. So I knew that I was not on the inside the way I could appear on the outside. I could do many Jewish things, but it never affected me on the inside. Look, I was very moral, I was very religious, but I was not changed. I was the same foul-mouthed, dirty-minded, self-centered, egotistical person at 20, at 18, at 16, at 14. Nothing had changed about me except I was getting older. So I made a big decision. I said, well, if I want to know about this person, Jesus Christ, I'm going to read this book, the New Testament. That was a big step for a Jew to read the New Testament. And I didn't want to talk to a rabbi or a priest or a minister. I don't want anyone to tell me what I'm reading. I'm going to read this book myself. Now, when I was a student at Juilliard, I used to practice for 10 hours a day. Now, let me tell you, that's not a lie, and that's not an exaggeration. I didn't sit at the piano for nine hours and 45 minutes. I sat every day at the piano for 10 full hours. I never left the school until I practiced 10 full hours. I started to read the New Testament, and my whole life came to a stop. I was literally, literally shocked when I started to read this book. For the first time in my life as a nine-year-old boy since I started piano, I stopped practicing. I'd never stopped practicing this long in my life. They told me to start in this book called John, the Gospel of John. They showed me where it was, and I started to read it on my own. And here was a man, Jesus, who said of himself, I am the light of the world. Wow. Wow. Really? Here was a man, Jesus, who said of himself, I am the bread of life. 
Here's a man, Jesus, who said of himself, no person comes to my Father, my God, except through me. He who has the Son of God has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I mean, my friend, this shocked me. This shocked me. I thought this man, I know we're in a beautiful church, but let me tell you, pardon me, this man has to be a lunatic. This man has to be an egomaniac. Moses, Moses, when he got the Ten Commandments, he didn't say he was the light of the world. Abraham, the father of the Jews, never said he was the light of the world. I was shocked at what Jesus kept saying about who he was. Well, I said, I got to make a decision here. This man's crazy. I'm going to throw away this book. This is ridiculous. And then at that moment, I remember seeing the garbage can. I'm going to go practice. At that moment, I said to myself, Sam, if this person, Jesus, is who he says he is, let me repeat that again. If this person, Jesus, if he is who he says he is, I may be making the biggest mistake of my life throwing this book away. I better listen to this man. And the second thing that shocked me was how many times Jesus said he came coming for sinners. I was not a sinner. I was very moral. I was very religious. I spent my whole life looking good for God. I was on God's side. And yet Jesus said he came to bring forgiveness. And he said he came to change us on the inside. He called it a new birth, a new heart, a new life, a spiritual birth, a spiritual heart, a spiritual life. You've heard I've played concerts in 61 different countries. I played all through Asia, Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, Thailand, South Korea, China, Japan, all through Europe. South America had two tours of concerts in Cuba, East Africa, South Africa. And let me tell you what I've learned. My friend, it doesn't matter if you're black or white. It doesn't matter if you're Asian or Hispanic. It doesn't matter if you're a communist in Havana, Cuba, or a capitalist in Washington, D.C. Because, my friend, I'm telling you this truth. Everybody in this world is good at hiding things. We have made lying, lying into an art. An art. You can hide things from your husband. You can hide things from your wife. You can hide things from your friends. You can hide things from your parents. You can hide things from someone at work, a supervisor. You can hide things from a church. But my friend, I'm telling you this truth. And whether you believe it or not doesn't make it real or not. It's the truth. Nobody, nobody hides anything from the Almighty. Nobody. And even though I was so moral, listen, and I was so religious, I thought I was clever enough with my tongue and crafty enough with my mind that I could hide things from people and God. And on May 21st, 1971, 45 years ago, for the first time, I prayed to this Jesus. And I'm going to tell you what I said. My name is Sam Rotman, and Jesus, I want you to take over my life. I want you to come into my life. I want you to have my life. I want you to tell me what to do, and I will not tell you what to do. I told Jesus the lies I said. I told Jesus the dirty thoughts I had. I told Jesus the immoral uh, curse words I said, 
every, this was not a time to hide anything. You get it? This was not a time to make excuses. Can I tell you something personally? It's not complicated to have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. We make it complicated. I finished that prayer, I opened my eyes, and in a billionth of a second, I knew that Jesus Christ completely, completely transformed me on the inside. I had a dirty, filthy mouth, and instantly, instantly, God cleaned it and changed it. I was shocked I stopped cursing. I wanted to stop cursing how many times, and I couldn't, and I could Immediately, I was shocked. I had a dirty, filthy mind, and instantly God cleaned it and changed it. I couldn't wait to wake up the next morning and read about Jesus Christ and pray to Jesus Christ. I couldn't wait to get to Juilliard and tell my friends, who mostly all were Jewish, I've met the Messiah. I've met the Messiah, and his name is Yeshua, Jesus, the Savior of Jews and Gentiles, this gift to the whole world. I've played over... I've played over 2,800 concerts, and I can tell you, my friend, that all of my concerts are nothing. You know how much nothing is? 2,800 concerts are nothing compared to having Jesus Christ. <laughs> music, music is not the most important thing in my life. Jesus Christ is, because listen, my friend, listen, my friend, only Jesus Christ can transform your life, period. Listen, listen. Your wife cannot change you. Your husband cannot change you. Your friends cannot change you. Your parents cannot change you. Your children cannot change you. Can I tell you something? You cannot change you. The hardest person to live with is you. This church cannot change you, as wonderful as it is. The Presbyterian church, the Baptist church, another Methodist church. You can do the sign of the cross a billion times, and it will never change the human heart. I can tell you what the church can do. It can make you moral, religious, and give you rituals. I was moral, I was religious, and I had rituals. In fact, on a side, you know what's the first thing you see when you walk into a synagogue? The first thing you see, the Ten Commandments. You know what's the first thing you see when you walk into a church? It's called forgiveness. Can you imagine? The first thing you see in a synagogue is God's law. <laughs> Failure, failure, failure. The first thing you see here, I want failures. Forgiveness. And that's a big cross up there. You know why? Because there's a lot of forgiveness. You know why? Because I need a lot of forgiveness right here. And you do too. You know I was Jewish? I was born Jewish. Think of it. If I was born in Egypt, I would be a Muslim. If I was born in India, a Hindu. People are born into a religion, but my friend, it's not a religion, it's a person. The central person of human history. Every time you write 2016, you're acknowledging the central person of human history, Jesus Christ. Salvation is not what you will ever do for Jesus. Salvation is everything Jesus has already done for you. That's salvation. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And I play the piano for Jesus Christ. He gave me the ears to hear the music, the fingers to play the music, the mind to learn the music, the heart to love the music. You know that Jesus has never missed one of my concerts. I know it sounds cute, but it's very, very real to me. Very real to me. And every time I give a concert in a church, in a hall, with an orchestra, college, university, there's always one person in the front, that's Jesus Christ. And when I sit down to play, he always says the same thing to me. He says, Sam, I'm really looking forward to hearing you play for me tonight. 
My friend, if I could look into your eyes, I mean this, listen, if I could look into each of your eyes, I would tell you with every fiber of my being, it's worth living for this Jesus. Listen, 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 listen. This Jesus, this Jesus is not a joke. People make jokes about this Jesus. He's no joke. He's not a myth. He's not hocus pocus. He's not a nice story. It's life or death. Life or death. Don't let anything become an excuse to keep you from the amazing life that there is with Jesus Christ. I had a million excuses. For a thousand plus years, all my family was Jewish, 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 Jewish. I had a million excuses. Your past can disappoint you. A Christian can disappoint you. A church. You have a hurt from the past. My friend, those things aren't worth it. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Last thing I'll be done. We'll be then finished with one last piece. I want you to imagine that the church doors open up and Jesus Christ himself walks right down the center row aisle here and he stands and he faces all of us. Now, it's not going to happen, but I'm going to say it again. Imagine your doors fling open and Jesus Christ, Lord of all, walks down the aisle of your church and he faces all of us. And Jesus starts walking up and down every pew and he looks into your eyes. Not your husband, your, he looks into your eyes. What would Jesus say to you? I know you, I know you, I don't know you, I don't know you. You think that's strange? Jesus himself said, the day is going to come when he will say to some people, depart from me, I never knew you. If you don't know what Jesus would say to you, you perhaps don't know him. But you can. That's the great news. You can say to Jesus, my name is, like you, your name, my name is, and Jesus, I want you to take over my life. And he will. I want you to forgive me. And he will. He will. I want you to be with me, and he will. I want you to guide me, and he will. Everything you have, every need you have, Jesus says, I will. I am. You need hope? That I am. You need forgiveness? That I am. You need strength? That I am. You need a friend? That I am. You need real living water? That I am. My friend, you do that and you will have and experience the salvation of your soul. Music gives me a lot of happiness, but not one note of music will ever change me. I'll play 30,000 notes. Not one note will change me. Jesus changed me and transformed me and gave me a new life. Praise his holy name. Last piece. This is by Chopin. Chopin was Polish. And he wrote a piece, many pieces, called Polonaise. That's a national dance of Poland. 
And Poland was trying to get their independence from Prussia, not Russia, but Prussia. And they lost a battle. And he wanted to encourage his Polish people. And he wrote this piece called The Military Polonaise. Very enthusiastic work, almost bombastic. And uh, at one point, you can hear a drum roll. So this is the last piece. This is The Military Polonaise by Chopin. Thank you. Thank you.